0: Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Welcome to Terror Talk. This is Shannon and Kathy. Kathy, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Shannon? I'm pretty good. We are doing our fourth part of our four-part series on Jeffrey Dahmer today. Um, so take us through it, man. The debauchery continues. It does. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So for those of
1: you who, uh, listened to the last part, maybe it was last, you know, last week, I'm not sure how recent, I'll just kind of fill people in where we stopped. So we were talking a lot about his victims. Um, we had finally gotten into his, just the compulsion and his lack of desire to stop. And in fact, how his fantasies became more deviant and towards the end of the last episode, we talked about um, how he started to dismember the bodies and keep uh, specifically skulls um, and sometimes even the genitals. So just like with any other compulsion, you tend to need more to satiate the craving or the urge uh, or the anxiety or whatever it is that's creating this compulsion. So Jeffrey starts to now take this a step further and um, he his attempt to create a living zombie so to just remind everybody he never really wanted his partner slash victim to be conscious and would complain that they moved too much during sex mm-hmm. so he was really um Uh, it was imperative for him to drug them or to have them, you know, somewhat unconscious while he was having sex with them, which would oftentimes lead to murder. Mm -hmm. So his, this urge to, and this desire uh, to take total possession of these men, this is what became his everything. It was about, even if it meant ingesting them, Mm -hmm. um, And it was men he found physically attractive, whether by photo documenting their dead bodies or by storing their parts in his refrigerator. He was now not only murdering them and dismembering him, dismembering them. He was keeping them. Yeah. Um, So rather than killing his next victim, he decided he would feed into his ultimate fantasy of a total subservient partner. Mm. and he attempted to create a living zombie um with without the need to kill him
0: yeah because what i know of um paraphilias or necrophilias is that they don't always it doesn't always involve homicide no
1: that's correct that's correct and we'll get into in the next part i'm going to actually talk about his first victim that he drugged and drilled a hole into his head and created this living zombie. But before we get to that victim, I want to take a moment to just describe to our listeners what paraphilias are. Great. And so a paraphilia is actually, um, their sexual interests in objects, situations or individuals that are atypical. So the American psychiatric association in its Diagnostic Statistical Manual, uh, the DSM-5, draws a distinction between something that's a paraphilia, so an atypical sexual interest, and a paraphilic disorder, which additionally requires the experience of distress or impairment in functioning. So clearly, with Jeffrey, uh, we were beyond just someone who had an odd or you know atypical um, desire, but rather someone who this was now creating additional distress and impairment in both himself and his victims
0: right. and the first, go ahead we're gonna say, oh, I was just to say like what you're talking about you know the areas of functioning right so social occupational etc he's impaired in all those ways he can't really I mean I know he has a job at one point but right he doesn't have a place to live he doesn't have a social life really without that's Well, and this about- took
1: up 90% of his time
0: right you know, it was, like any addiction.
1: <laughs> sorry, you were saying what?
0: I was just saying like any addiction.
1: Yeah. It starts to take over your life and you can't stop no matter how much it gets in the way of your, your day-to-day functioning. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, he was also killing people in the process. So um, a lot of uh, destruction. So a specific type of paraphilia, uh, a specific type that we would associate with Dahmer is necrophilia. So necrophilia is a sexual attraction um, to or sexual contact with dead bodies. And just like you were saying earlier, it doesn't necessarily involve murder. Someone could just go to a recently buried grave site, just like he did earlier on in his life. He would Mm -hmm. find, you know, uh, boys bodies who were just buried 10 days before and have sex with them. Uh, But he wasn't murdering those.
0: It was all kind of part of the practice. It
1: was all part of his practice. And remember, if we go back to the episode one, this is what I think is so ironic and so creepy and ominous, is when we talked about his surgery as a little boy and how he felt so intruded upon and how he felt completely out of control and lifeless with all these doctors coming in and he couldn't move and they were invading his body. Right. So you never know how much of that played a big part in this.
0: Right. I I was thinking also, too, just just to backtrack for a second, is, like, other paraphilias are what? Things like voyeurism and even pedophilia is... Yeah, so there's voyeuristic,
1: exhibitionism, frauderistic, which is, like, the creepy guy that goes behind the woman in a bus and rubs up against her for an erection. Right. Um, There's sexual masochism, which is very different from BDSM. This is non-consensual um this is, really has to do with uh, humiliation and beating that is that goes beyond you know a safe sort of bdsm right um, sadism
0: mm-hmm. or the masochism and, and again like you were saying it needs to cause distress in someone's life it's not it's not
1: in order know. for it to be a disorder correct so someone could have sexual masochism as a paraphilia but not be classified as a disorder because it's within the BDSM culture and it's safe versus the person who engages in asphyxiation and is harming people, harming themselves, things like that.
0: Yeah. Good. I'm glad we're making that distinction.
1: Yeah. And same with sexual sadism. Um, I think that this is again, talking about distress and causing pain, non-consensual, Um, and also then taking over as a compulsion in their life. So, yeah, huge distinction. Um, And then, you know, we do have, and this is a really, really, really controversial area in psychology, but there are more modern sexual institutes now that are talking about pedophilic disorder, um, looking at it from somewhat of a normative place and not insinuating that a person should act on it, but that pedophilic desires may... Uh, not the abnormal. My response to that is I think we have to be careful. It's a slippery slope. If you don't have people who are forensically trained and only trained in sex therapy, that person may not be qualified to screen a predator. Right. Um, And so I've gotten into discussions with people who are really, you know, um, sort of progressive sex therapists and we've gotten into disagreements around the subject and and I've said to them with all due respect unless you really know how to screen somebody for risk this person could be playing you and using the therapist as rehearsal a fantasy rehearsal
0: yeah so much we we often have unfortunately unwillingly participate in rehearsal yeah
1: yeah so we have to be careful and then there's other fetishes and and other things. So, but with Jeffrey necrophilia, it's also um, it could also be a morbid fondness for being in the presence of dead bodies. So it may not necessarily be uh, having sex with the dead body, but just there's an obsession with being in the presence of dead bodies and the impulse to uh, to have sexual contact or the act of such contact with a dead body. So even if it's just the desire. Um, while being in the presence of dead bodies it's a it's a sexual
0: arousal or attraction to that because when he was a kid i mean death was a very early preoccupation for him because of connecting with his father in that way
1: there must be something around that i would as part of it yeah, yeah.
0: i would abs- i would imagine that there's some sort of uh, correlation there and he did the somnophilia too, right? Like sleeping with the dead body or did he cut him up immediately? Um,
1: I know I don't know if he ever slept with the dead body. I know that he had uh, uh, bodies that he had not dismembered like in his bedroom and next to his bed and things like that. Um, but what he would do is he would drug people to the point of, of being so comatose that he could lay and just listen to their, their breath. Um, they wouldn't move almost like, you know, using, like, Rufalin or something to knock him out. Um, right. But I don't know if he ever actually, like, slept. Now, what he would do, though, is while he was dismembering the bodies, there were a couple, one in particular, I think we talked about in the last episode he was very attracted to. He would kiss the skull. After he had decapitated the body, he would sort of kiss and, and um, you know, caress the corpses while he was dismembering them. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So... Some potential causes of this, of disorder, of this disorder is um, it could stem from an intense fear of interacting with potentially living partners. So we knew, know that Jeffrey had an intense fear of interaction with people. And we'll talk ab- about uh, schizoid personality disorder later on tonight. But there was that. There was an intense fear of that and so much that he would drug his victims just to be with them. Necrophiliacs also may view corpses as emotionally or, vi- or physically non-threatening, which again, sort of goes with the first point. Yeah, um, Some necrophiliacs might be attracted to the fact that the corpse cannot reject, disagree, manipulate, or abuse them. Again, that would fit Jeffrey very much. Mm-hmm. Um, the enjoyment of feeling, uh, being in complete control, which is what we just talked about at the very beginning, that complete subservient partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it may be a means of aiding the patient and over- overcoming the loss of a loved object that is dynamically similar to the manic defense. So um, this is a defense mechanism like many disorders are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know there's, there's also, I, I was looking at a little bit of research on this in preparation for our uh, series actually. And I I came across something that actually distilled 10 different kinds of necrophiliacs. So Mm -hmm. I guess there's a bunch of different kinds too. In other words, Mm -hmm. I think most of society and me, honestly, before the last few weeks, (laughs) kind of characterized a necrophile, I guess you'd call it. Mm -hmm. as you know one thing and there's all these very subtle because there's there's ones that will role play there's ones that are more romantic there's ones that are into the tactile piece there's ones that don't kill there's mystic ones there's homicidal ones there you know so it's got a it's got so much more nuance than yes Uh uh-huh one would think i guess
1: yeah, I mean, I guess that fits with paraphilias too, because if you look at, you know, like exhibitionism or whatever it could be, they're sexually aroused by exposing their genitals to pre- prepubescent children versus someone who's physically mature. Um, so there's like all these subcategories, right? And so I guess that would make sense with
0: necrophiles as well. Yeah, because because when I, when I think about him, I think, okay, so there's a part of him that's a homicidal necrophile because he was killing people and then there was this also this part of him that just wanted to be a role player which would be like well actually i don't know role players are like they don't want to have sex with the dead person but they they like they enjoy sex with a living person pretending to be dead and then there's you know there's all these different things so it just seems like like with most things in mental health I would imagine he's a blend of, um, you know, a few different kinds of necrophiles yeah, too. I would part agree fetish, that. it's part the tactile experience. Like I think he liked cutting them up and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then part homicidal because there was a rage in him too. Yeah.
1: And then there was also this uh, just need to ingest them and for them to become part of him.
0: Right. Right. So it's like, it's not only, I get, this is a big old word I'm going to use, but I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. Cause I've only ever really read it. Cause I don't have too many conversations about necrophilia, <laughs> but, um, necro mutilomaniacs. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's their interest in the dead bodies is not just touching them. It's just, dis- it's mutilating them. Mm-hmm. Like the pleasure I don't know much about Jeffrey's pleasure, where the pleasure was, but mutilating and you're getting pleasure out of that. Yeah. So
1: he certainly did.
0: uh, Yeah. That's what it seems like from what I've learned from you over the course of these weeks is that that seems to be a piece of, there's just all these bits and pieces of it that form him. It's just complicated.
1: Yeah. So. We're going to take a break here. We're going to come back and talk about the first victim he attempted to drug and and zombify.
0: Okay. Uh, we will be back in just a moment um, after a quick break. Thank you so much for listening. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. I believe we are getting into more Jeffrey Dahmer victims now
1: Yes So we are going to talk about His first victim um, that he, Where he tried to Turn this Guy into a zombie mm. um, I remember watching This documentary and they It was like a, they did a dramatization Of this and he The, the man's name was Arrow Lindsay He drugs him <laughs> and he drills a hole in his head and he pours muriatic acid into his brain so he he wakes up he wakes up can you imagine the victim wakes up complaining of a headache that's it not knowing that his his skull is exposed to you know air and jeffrey then drugs him strangles him decapitates him and keeps his skull and tries to preserve his skin. So clearly it didn't work. He's like, shit, I should just kill him. This is not happening. Um, But then still goes ahead and does his usual routine, but tries to preserve his skin, which is interesting. I don't know if he's ever done that before.
0: Yeah. And I guess, so my assumption is that he had done some research of some kind or he just made it up in his head that he thought that if he did that, that he would um, kind of perform a sort of acid lobotomy and... Yes. Okay, I see.
1: And and that he would stay alive and be under his control, but still, you know, in a zombie, comatose state, which is how Jeffrey liked his victims. So at this time, people in his building are now complaining to management about a foul order odor and strange noises coming from his house. I bet can you imagine i i i I mean get a picture (laughs) if they only knew well and they they eventually find out so they go down to his door maintenance or management goes to his door asks you know and says hey we're having some complaints here he blames it on a broken refrigerator and his meat rotting in the fridge
0: well it was he was it's not
1: entirely a (laughs) lie.
0: yeah oh god
1: um the second man he attempts to do this to, his name's Anthony Hughes. This is now in May. He's deaf and mute, uh, tries to create another zombie with Anthony, but Hughes dies. Um, he leaves the body on his floor to rot before he would dissolve it in acid several days later, oh, and he keeps God the skull. It. Yeah, can you imagine? It's like, oh, that one didn't work. I, I'm just going to leave that one by my bed. Yeah, got to go to work. Like, like a <laughs> pair of pants. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Yeah, I'll pick that one up later.
0: Well, he's he's really just devolving.
1: Oh, without yeah, without a doubt. So he was known to take Polaroid pictures um, as his victims were bleeding to death, also, huh. and and he would um, kiss the skulls as he dismembered the bodies, which I was talking about in the first uh, part of tonight. His next victim was the brother of a boy he had molested in 1988. Hmm. Um, so we had talked about this boy in another episode. This victim, his name is, I'm probably butchering this name, Konerik hmm. Synthasem Phone. <laughs> We're going to call him KS, okay? okay? So he was tricked into entering Dahmer's apartment on May 16th, 1991, um, and he would not be seen until the following day. So he escapes, KS escapes after being heavily drugged, um, and muriatic acid going into his brain, the uh, 14-year-old boy runs out naked and bleeding into the street in front of the apartment complex. Dahmer immediately runs outside and acts as if he were trying to comfort KS as the police arrive. This is a, this is the victim that most people remember when they think about Dahmer. Um, So Dahmer stays very calm and collected, per usual, Mm -hmm. because he's a sociopath. Mm -hmm. Um, He explains to the officers that uh, he has his 19-year-old lover, um, and they had been drinking a little too much. So he lies about his age and clearly lies about the actual situation. So KS did not know English. I believe he was of Asian descent, and he was in a semi-comatose state. He was unable to tip off the officers. He was unable to respond to that. So the officers laughed and carried the boy back to Dahmer's house. Oh, that is just brutal. So imagine again, he's getting away with these odors. He's now gotten through what three different police debacles. So it gets even it gets even worse, but better for Dahmer. The two police the two police officers escort Dahmer and Chaos back inside. After glancing at Dahmer's immaculate, immaculate apartment, he probably kept the front really clean. The two officers leave, despite the fact that there was a horrible odor, yeah, um, and that wounds had been inflicted on KS's head.
0: I mean, it just goes. It, I mean, it just goes to show you. Well, first of all, first of all, someone has wounds on their head. You're going to take them to the hospital, or right, you know. At least, you know, okay, so it's a lover's quarrel or whatever. Let's go to the hospital. You know, hypothetically, obviously it wasn't there, so I don't really know what was said or what they were doing. And then secondarily, it just goes to show you how much we can't believe this kind of thing really happens.
1: It's unreal. So, and remember, three, four days before this, he had dumped, uh, what was it, Anthony's body? Anthony mm-hmm. Hughes? Um, Let's see. Was it Anthony? Yeah, he dumped Anthony's body three, four days before. It's still rotting in his bedroom next to his bed. (laughs) So the police officers don't take time to notice that foul odor or notice the dead body rotting in Dahmer's room.
0: The smell must have been horrendous. Can you
1: imagine smelling it? So the police officers leave, and that night Dahmer murders, murders and dismembers KS and then mm. keeps his skull as a memento. The officers were later suspended, but then reinstated after threatening civil suits to regain their positions. These guys should never work another day.
0: Ugh, it's terrible. It's just really, I mean, I, I, and that, I mean, I understand that. It's certainly outrageous. And then there was a part of me that I initially thought, because we can all make terrible mistakes, I initially thought, I felt for those officers that, okay, so I don't know them and I don't know the situation and maybe they were incompetent, but also it's like, I also feel for them because you have to know that at some point they sat with themselves. I would hope so. They realized they could have saved this kid's life and they could, and they didn't. Right. That's just, I mean, that's just That would be
1: the worst part, is to realize that you allowed this boy to die. He was actually 14 and not 19. Yeah. Um, Not that it would have been better if he was 19, but it just adds another piece to it.
0: Another layer of horrible.
1: Yeah. So he's now recognizing that he has to become a little bit savvier because these odors are getting out of control. So he purchases a barrel where he can then keep and preserve the remains without the odor. Okay. His father at the time is suspecting a homosexual lifestyle. And I'm thinking, dude, this oh. is this is the least of your problems.
0: Really? And that's so 10 years ago for Jeffrey.
1: Right. So he's not at all clued in to what Jeffrey's hiding.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Jeffrey at this time also chooses to relocate to Chicago. So remember, he's been all over... Um, that whole midwestern. Thing. Well, he has to move around. He has to move around. So the murders, the rapes, and the dismemberments continue. Matt Turner was murdered on June 30th, 1991. Jeremiah Wenberger on July 7th. They spent days together, but when he wanted to leave, Jeffrey drugged him and drilled a hole in his skull. So this, in this case, um, I believe, yeah, he spends almost like a three-day binge with this one, having sex and drugging him and all this then when he drills a hole in his skull Wenberger initially survives Jeffrey goes to work and I think he like cuffs him to a chair and he comes back and and Wenberger's in a, a coma um, but then he comes back home from work and he finds him dead so this is awful this is literally my next note Jeffrey begins to run out of room in his fridge
0: oh for the love of God <laughs> <laughs>
1: within two weeks. Yeah, within two yes. weeks, he's back in his neighborhood in Milwaukee. He's now back. He moves again.
0: Because he had to get a new fridge? I mean, what the hell?
1: I think he was also used to relocating a bunch of times. It's like part of his
0: normal, too. Well, yeah, because he can't... I mean, that. I mean, that's... I think that's a pattern in a lot of serial killers, because if they stay, they get caught.
1: Right. So then he, he goes and he has two two more, Oliver Lacey on July 15th, Joseph Brandenhoff on July 19th. He starts to now keep the organs for consumption. He's now start. this is now when we think about Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal, this is when it starts.
0: I think that's what a lot of people think of when they think of him as the eating.
1: Right, and if you think about it, it's actually well into his trajectory. Yeah, it's the end. It's really the end. So he begins eating hearts and muscles of his victims. Hmm. Um, and he, he's now terminated from his work, um, probably because his killings, he's on binge killings. Yeah. Uh, and they begin to get in the way of his concentration.
0: I mean, I would think so. Yeah, I mean, the obsession takes over 100% eventually.
1: I'm going to talk about right now, which is the one that many people, um, other than KS, he's probably the next victim that people are very familiar with. And he was the one who got away. His name was Tracy Edwards. Um, he had escaped from Dahmer's murder lair in the Oxford apartments on July 22nd with handcuffs attached to one wrist. Mm-hmm. He waved down a police car and directed the officers to Dahmer's apartment. He directed the officers to look further into his apartment. Thank mm-hmm. God he was aware and conscious enough to say, uh, You have to go all the way in there. Yeah. So, Officer Mueller begins to discover. 75 polaroid pictures of victims dismembered and decayed Uh, now imagine as i walk through this imagine being this officer he walks in he first sees 75 polaroid pictures of victims dismembered and decayed that that's bad enough he then opens the refrigerator to find a severed head two Ah. two human hearts arm an arm muscle a bag of organs and a human torso in the freezer
0: yeah, I'm calling for backup
1: at this point. Yeah. In the apartment, there are two complete uh-huh. skeletons: a pair of
0: severed hands,
1: two severed and preserved penises, and a mummified scalp. Two other dismembered uh-huh. torsos were discovered, and an altar of candles and human skulls found in his closet. Uh-huh that must have been the most horrifying one of the most horrifying crime scenes to this day
0: absolutely i mean it's uh it and unfortunately i have a vivid imagination me too so i've created it in my head as you described it which probably many of our listeners have too and that is that is obscene and there he is standing in the middle of it Calm, cool, and flat affect. Totally flat.
1: And this was the night that I think I texted you and I said I had been watching a couple documentaries and I said to you I have so much appreciation for what you had to do with Manson because I remember shutting this off. I had to turn on something funny. Yeah, uh, it was really I, I. I mean, you and I can watch a lot of this stuff and we, you know, we have a horror podcast and we talk about slashers and. But there was something about this evening. I almost felt like I had to go wash it off. It was so depressing
0: i understand it's like uh, kathy and i often joke about like i had to go pop in at disney because it was because our work is often brutal like that Mm -hmm. Um, you have days where you hear you have this vicarious trauma of all the things and that's kind of i get it because i did i did mention i think in the manson series something about I couldn't watch any more interviews with him because I, right. And that's how I felt too. Yeah. I had watched a bunch and I just was so just, I was just so sick of him. (laughs) So I get it. It's um, I can imagine how disturbing, I mean, even kind of just hearing it and reading about necrophilia Yeah,
1: and his delivery. I mean, I think I mentioned in the first episode that I ended up watching more videos than I actually read about him because I wanted to watch his, affects and the way that he his composure and he was so indifferent and although he was apologetic in the end which we're going to get into the end we're going to take a break here and get into our last uh, our final piece on the series but uh, how stoic and flat and just unaffected he appeared during all of this is really disturbing
0: yeah, and that that does bring up a point. One of the things I think we'll do here at the end, so stay tuned for that, is that I have some thoughts that I've been jotting down about some really profound differences between him and Manson and Bundy, who I know we've all done series on. Um, I mean, it's striking me.
1: At yeah, the moment. So.
0: yeah we'll we'll get into that and also what his trial and yeah
1: we're gonna talk uh you know briefly about his trial his prison life and then um how he died and then we all will have a discussion at the end about all the different forensic psychologists and their takes and and maybe our takes on diagnoses and presentation psychological
0: presentation all that perfect that that sounds great we'll be right back after a break We are back. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy, and we are going to engage in our last segment of the Jeffrey Dahmer series. So Jeffrey
1: in how do I want to say this? Ted Bundy and Jeffrey both waived their rights to an attorney but for very different reasons. (laughs) Um, Bundy waived his rights because he wanted to defend himself and felt that nobody was good enough. Um, because he was so pathologically narcissistic, versus Jeffrey, who waived his rights to an attorney because he wanted to confess to everything he had done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I had mentioned earlier on in the series how one of the more controversial things about Dahmer's presentation was this—whether it was superficial or not—but this presence of empathy. Yes, and it fall, which does not is very atypical of someone who's looked um more like a sociopath or psychopath or narcissist or whatever so um his his quote to this is i created this horror and it only makes sense i do everything to put an end to it Mm -hmm. jeffrey knew from day one that the rules did not apply to him I mean, excuse me. He, he realized that the rules did apply to him in society and that there would be consequence versus many serial killers who do not believe the rules apply to them. Right. Um, he made a full and complete confession to his killings, including cannibalism and necrophilia. And he was interviewed for over 60 hours. Yeah. So this was his reason. Quote, it was my way of remembering their appearance their physical beauty i also wanted to keep if i couldn't keep them there with me whole at least i could keep their skeletons unquote mm-hmm. so he had a ritual of posing the bodies in suggestive positions typically with the chest thrust outwards this is really interesting um, and i watched a documentary where this was they showed the the photos from the bo- the last couple bodies and was very disturbing uh, It was the chest was thrust outwards. He would also um, admit to performing necrophilia with several bodies, including sexual acts with their heads as he dismembered the bodies in his bathtub. Mm -hmm. So he would have them in these positions, almost like, you know, when you do a bridge in yoga, the bridge pose like that, um, The skeletons he would preserve with Soilex and bleach, something he had learned early on from his father. He would collect hearts, muscles, organs. He ended up being charged with 15 counts of murder. He was not charged with two of his murders, Steve Twomey being one. And he um, pleaded guilty, but not guilty by reason of insanity. So I want to say something. Jeffrey did uh, not get the insanity plea, but he did plead um for he wanted the insanity plea here's the thing with insanity and we've took i think we should reference back to what was the episode called shannon when we talk about myths is it myths of
0: serial killers yeah it's called myths myths about serial killers i think
1: we talk about mental capacity in that episode but i just want to for people who are unfamiliar in in forensic psychology Mental capacity means the ability to understand the nature and effect of one's acts or behavior. So in the state, I'm not sure what it was in, in his state um, or which state he was actually tried in, but in the state of California, we have a bifurcated trial. So there's the original trial where they're found, you know, guilty or not guilty. And then they have to um, basically plead guilty, have that trial and then plead guilty, but not guilty by reason of insanity Um, but he clearly as the trial went on he did not fit the bill for insanity for a number number of reasons first of all the majority of the time he was intoxicated substance intoxication cannot be used as a legal defense
0: Um,
1: and he also purposely drank so his impulses could not be controlled so there was a lot of evidence pointing towards the fact that he knew simply by drinking alcohol to control the impulse control that he was well aware of the fact that he was doing harm
0: yeah and then later all the interviews that came out with you know diane sawyer and all of that stuff later he he very clearly knows it was wrong and right couldn't help himself from doing it
1: yes and the other part of it which was he did not at any point with any sort of psychotic break believed that these bodies were attacking him and it was some sort of perceived fear. So clearly yeah. there was no insanity involved. Now his defense diagnosed him with borderline personality disorder, schizotypal personality disorder disorder driven by impulses he could not control, alcohol abuse, and necrophilia. Uh, they argued that due to his schizotypal personality disorder, he was driven by impulses he was unable to control, and that he was insane due to his necrophilic drive. Um, So, personality disorders cannot be a defense. Uh, I'm not sure in their state, but I know in the state of California, um, antisocial personality disorder cannot be used as a defense. Uh, It can certainly be diagnosed later on when someone is hospitalized and it can be used to hold somebody longer. But it can certainly, it's not used at all as a defense. Personality disorders are not used as a defense. So clearly that did not work. Right. Um, prosecution argued that that these disorders did not rob Dahmer of his ability to appreciate the difference between right and wrong or the criminality of his contact, which, conduct, which I completely agree with. Mm-hmm. He could, in fact, resist his impulses, and he did not suffer from primary necrophilia. Now, we've talked about this Uh, primary and secondary diagnoses but what they're talking about in this situation is primary necrophilia meaning he did prefer live sexual partners now he liked them to be still and he liked them to be comatose but he preferred that over dead people and this they they use the evidence of the creation of living zombies to solidify their point if he just wanted them dead he would have killed them and had sex with them but he attempted to keep them alive but in a comatose state.
0: Yeah, later. Later. But...
1: Yes, but he but that's ultimately what he wanted. Yeah. So these were deemed premeditated and his actions were were about control rather than mental illness. So his verdict would determine whether or not he would go to a prison or a hospital. So if he's found insane, he's going to go to a hospital. If he's found, you know, guilty, He's going to prison so the jury agreed with prosecution and he was deemed sane um he was given 15 life sentences Mm -hmm. he stated he never wanted freedom but rather death to himself he stated that he believes he is sick and now has peace he was forced to listen to many of the victims families he was extradited for his first murder adding a 16th life sentence so he was actually locked up with some of the most dangerous rapists and murders. He was placed in solitary confinement for his own safety because people wanted to kill him. Mm-hmm. So he only had contact with staff. He was provided a television. After one year of solitude, he was moved to a less secure arrangement and back with the prison population. He was a loner, but he would talk to his father and brother over the phone. He then became a born again Christian and Batman was baptized in prison. Um, in July 1994 at Osvaldo, um, uh, a, a man by the name Osvaldo de I could be saying that r- wrong, attacked Jeffrey with an imp- uh, improvised knife attempting to slice his throat, but Jeffrey only suffered minor cuts. And in the same year, uh, he gave an interview with his father. Um, but a few months later, he would leave his cell with two other inmates, I think, to go clean, um, to do, you know, cleaning duties. Mm-hmm. And he was left unsupervised for 20 minutes. He was discovered on the floor. He was bludgeoned with a 20-inch metal bar with repeated blows. And he was pronounced dead an hour later at the hospital. And I believe the other two people who were cleaning with him were also bludgeoned. And what's ironic about uh, that was uh, going back to, I think it was the second episode of the series, I had mentioned that his first murder was with a barbell or a dumbbell, yeah. um, and that's how he died. Oh, right so that was that was uh the end of jeffrey so um that's his story and i think that so this, we don't know
0: who killed him is what that...
1: we do know who killed him is follow oh. Dorothy yeah oh. in 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 prison oh no I'm, I'm sorry i'm sorry that was the one with the the knife. yeah that was the assault yeah right? there was um there i don't know the name of the person but i do believe they have it on camera
0: Oh, oh. Got him, yeah, great, yeah, right, because prisons are filled with cameras. Yeah, I
1: just don't have his name here. But, you know, this leaves us to... Uh, I'm going to say something here, Shannon, and then I'm, I want to ask you your thoughts on this. But there was, you know, there is some speculation. There have been psychologists who believe maybe he was on the autism spectrum. Um, I don't believe that. Autism spectrum and schizoid personality disorder overlap but are certainly not the same disorder, but they have very similar... Um, Overlaps, you know, mm-hmm. limited empathy and understanding of other people's situations. Um, however, with autism, um, you're going to have people who are triggered by overstimulation, by sensory input um, of varying kinds. He did not have that. What he did have, though, was a lot of the schizoid stuff, which is lack of interest in social relationships restricted range of expression of emotions, little to no interest in sexual experiences with another person. Although he did have sexual, you know, uh, sex with other people, they were certainly not consensual or um, the person was not conscious. Um, And then many psychologists also diagnosed him with borderline personality disorder, which we talked about. So I just want to make one more comment here. He did fall short on the PCLR, which is the psychopathy checklist. So he did not meet criteria for being a psychopath
0: yeah i mean that actually makes sense it to does
1: me. it does to me too
0: yeah just you know getting getting to know him uh, over the last four weeks that makes sense to me um the the schizotypal makes sense to me because of the derealization and the thought stuff and the social anxiety and unconventional beliefs to say the least hmm Um, and just having sat with people who are in that personality, um, area, he presents like that. And Mm -hmm. that's just, um, that's not a thing you can describe necessarily. It's just a thing, you know, when you sit with people with different personality disorders. Um, so you can kind of see it a little, you know, you make a gut kind of thought when you look at him. Um, the BPD, the borderline makes perfect sense to me as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I said that early on, that was my thought process in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of the things besides, uh, what the DSM would say, well, the DSM would say the abandonment stuff, which was driving a lot of his obsession, um, is an easy pull for borderline. And then the other thing is that, um, his his attachment to being a victim Mm -hmm. um a lot the interviews that i've seen with him and and just listening to you and what and what you've laid out here for us is is his attachment with being a victim he 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 defaults right away to i'm a bad person Mm -hmm. you kill me all of that right
1: which is not something you would see so much with someone with antisocial personality
0: disorder. No, no, he did have
1: many antisocial traits, but he certainly yeah. did not meet the criteria for that or psychopathy.
0: Yes, I mean i I feel as if I feel as if he's so for in my world. I think he's coming from a more depressive personality, and it like way down oh, in for there, sure, in the in the depths of him. I I feel like that's kind of the base. So the depressive person who, who has terrible Mm -hmm. self-loathing. All
1: the shame, all the early abandonment, all of that warped sense of intimacy, it's all there.
0: So much. And I think it's a, I mean, personally, you know, obviously, and I'll just do the disclaimer. I know we've done the disclaimer before, but the disclaimer is that, I haven't assessed him. I don't know. We're having a hypothetical conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so a depressive personality operating at a borderline level. So a psychodynamic diagnosis is a little bit different in the sense that you can you can be operating at a bo- we can all operate at a borderline level depending on stressors and situational things that are happening and different mental illnesses that come in and out, trauma that comes in and out. So this is not... This is not DSM-based, so I'm just putting that out there. But so, a a schizotypal or a depressive personality that's operate, you know, it has had all these stressors and then begins to operate at a borderline level will go into these kinds of rages where they're binge killing and all the stuff that Kathy has described. And then on top of that, I mean, as far as Access One is concerned, I think he's an obsessive compulsive. I have that down, too, OCD. Yeah, I'm real surprised. I mean, I, I have a feeling they just didn't want to give him the insanity plea. So I, I get that. But how, how you don't put an access one obsessive OCD on here. I, I think,
1: I, yeah, sure. I mean, I think that that was one of, the inter- one of the psychologists who did not work on the case but did a, an analysis like we're doing now. Uh, I think I, I had also made a note of OCD because it's certainly there. It's certainly there from the beginning when he was a kid in his obsessions with yeah. collecting and dissecting. It was there early on
0: yeah. and then
1: transformed and manifested. Like you said, when the depression, mm-hmm. um, that depressive piece starts to kick in, it starts to manifest in a different way, but his mm-hmm. OCD was there early on.
0: Yeah.
1: So, so much you know when you look at Jeffrey from um just a more surface space of like yeah his parents were divorced and, and I think that's how it presented a lot during the trial like you knows but when you really dig into his life there mm-hmm. was a lot of trauma
0: oh my gosh yeah
1: there was a lot more trauma than what it looks like on the surface
0: well and 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 what they're looking at now is that you know, we don't do a very good job in our traditional um, APA slash DSM assessment tools, the tools that we are, you know, the blunt instruments we're given as professionals to to help uh, figure people's puzzle out. um, We're not given a lot of tools in the area of trauma in the sense that for diagnosis, like especially with children, it's woefully incompetent, I think, are like...
1: Yeah, with trauma, all of that's terrible. terrible.
0: And so, you know, the trauma, so much of anxiety disorders, what they're finding out slowly now, which a lot of us practicing have known for a long time, we just didn't have a way to, to say it within the guidelines, is that a lot of the anxiety disorders come from trauma. Like this OCD... I mean that just feels trauma-based to me. In other words, like trauma first, OCD is a symptom, you know.
1: Well, and that's all OCD is, right? It's a manifestation right. because it's a, it's a, it's an attempt. It's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's maladaptive, but it's an attempt to control something. Yeah.
0: Yes, and I think I think that's a perspective that that we have also of addiction so so many times when you were talking i was thinking you know so just think of someone who chooses heroin as their addiction they spend hours full days full nights on the drug so he would he would he would hunt he would kill he and then he would spend days in his addiction it's like it's like doing heroin for going on a bender for six days.
1: Exactly. That's exactly you know? what it was with when he was dismembering and bleaching. Yeah. And- mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So if there were, you know, <laughs> an, if the, yeah. if we had an addiction to control, an addiction to um, ritual, it's just this ritual that he was, yeah. uh, you know, paraphilic addiction type of situation
1: yeah. for sure. Um, I I want to remind I I think I mentioned this throughout the series but I just wanted to give credit to Stephen David Lampley who wrote the book the Dahmer book which is where I got a lot of my um, information from and it's a really good easy read really um, informative narrative of Dahmer
0: and uh, if people want to read it I recommend it great I am There's one of the thing I actually mentioned before we took the last break is that there was something that struck me. So if you look at interviews of um, we've done series on Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, as far as the uh, white male killers, right? So if you watch tape of tape, wow, that dates me, huh? If If you watch Bundy, if you watch Dahmer and you watch Manson, they all have a very different presentation because I, i'm thinking you know dahmer has a flat affect but he has a depth to what he's saying that does not feel superficial
1: exactly where bundy everything that came out of his mouth
0: felt rehearsed whereas bundy and i know we mentioned this in the bundy episodes because we were both i we were both struck by how he would talk and not really say anything, which Mm -hmm. is kind of your first clue to to the superficiality of someone's personality. And then Manson was totally rhythmic and spoke in riddles and was nonsensical and nonlinear a lot of the times. And it was sometimes a manipulation and sometimes just the way he spoke. Um, They were all trauma victims, but they have a very different presentation and I just want to like, I just want to say that as we wrap this up because it gives you a sense of how you can sit with lots of different people that are doing horrible things and they and you're in the room with them and you're assessing them and you're talking to them and how, how differently each one can present. There, there isn't a cookie cutter situation. I mean, we see similarities and we can boil down patterns. But in general, they all come off very differently.
1: Which is why uh, forensic profiling has always been considered more of an art than a science because oh, there's yes. only so much we can do to actually yeah. profile. And you and I have said this, whether it's been on Shrink Chat or uh, our other episodes, which is this is what makes uh, diagnostic precision. Precision. This is what makes um, drawing causational... Um, conclusions to things in psychology uh naive and, and and irresponsible
0: yeah I mean it's it's humanity that's why medicine calls us the, a soft science because and I'm okay with that <laughs> like <Me too. laughs> I prefer a soft science I, I prefer humanity I prefer the gray mm-hmm. I don't things are black and white so um especially humanity and especially psyche if we ever begin to think that it's black and white we're we're in very big trouble um but I, there's so there's a couple of housekeeping things i want to clear up and i want to thank you so much kathy for all of the work yeah. you did yeah to bring You're us awesome. this story It's been really fascinating
1: yeah he was uh, um, an interesting guy for sure
0: very and uh so a couple things one His killer was named Christopher Scarver. Ah, good. I just looked it up while you were, like, while we were talking. Um, So for those of you who like those kinds of facts, Christopher Scarver is the man who um, fatally assaulted Jeffrey. Um, The name of the episode she was talking about was an episode we did back in January called Myths About Serial Killers. So we've probably talked about something in that with regards to this. Uh, The other thing I want to mention is that next week we're doing um, an episode on the new season of Mindhunter. So Mindhunter is season two. We're in season two. And so we're both gonna, we've both been, now we've been doing it. We've been rewatching season one um, and and starting to watch season two. So we're excited about that. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that series. I'm really looking forward to it too and then after that at the beginning of September we start the second season of Terror Talk so please continue to listen to us and enjoy and come back on Friday for our uh, our show Shrink Chat which is our companion show to this show and we really appreciate you uh, this is Terror Talk my name is Shannon and I'm Kathy sleep safe everyone We hope you enjoyed this episode of terror talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of terror talk every Wednesday and of shrink chat every Friday until then goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.